Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. So Lord, we thank you, God, for your, the infinite worth, God, of who you are. Lord, we thank you, God, for your, your word, Lord, that has been preserved and translated, God, and kept for generations, Lord, for us to feast upon it today. God, we pray that you would feed us with your word, that you would enlighten us, inspire us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so tonight we are finishing part two. We did part one last week, part two this week, and the title is Faith That Gains God's Approval. So we are working verse by verse through Hebrews 11, and we covered 19 verses last week, and we will do the other 21 tonight. Um, So I will give a super brief recap of some of the questions that I stated um, regarding uh, faith. So what we're trying to do is not just generally believe that faith is powerful and brings results, but we want to understand faith biblically. We want to understand what the Bible has to say about all of the different dynamics of what faith is. So we're talking about faith that gains God's approval. And last week I talked about how we often measure faith based on two criteria. Does anyone remember what those are? We often measure faith based on if I feel it. Um, And then also, we often measure faith based on if I felt like I had faith for something, then the next question is, did it happen? If I felt like I had faith for this breakthrough or that healing, did it happen? And that's often kind of where we leave our evaluation of faith. Did I feel it? Do I feel this rush of faith? And then did did what I prayed for, what I believed for, did that come to pass? And I think there's a lot more to say about faith biblically than that. So I want to ask the question of what is our underlying beliefs about faith and are they true? So then I listed last week just some basic false assumptions. So false assumption number one is this idea that faith can always be measured by feelings. So faith can always be measured by our emotions or our feelings, this, this surge on the inside where we feel faith. And I believe that's a false assumption. And number two is if our quality or, qu- or quantity or quality of faith is high enough, we will get the results we want. And I believe this is also a false assumption, meaning that if I didn't get what I thought I had faith for, then I must not have had good enough faith in quality or in quantity. That somehow I just, it wasn't enough. If a few more people would have prayed, then the breakthrough would have come. Or if I would have fasted a few more days, then the healing would have come. And that, that sentiment of, uh, of faith wasn't good enough, therefore the results didn't come. I believe that is a, also a false assumption. And the third false assumption is if we don't get the answers to prayer, If we don't get the answers that we had faith for, it proves that either our faith wasn't strong enough or that God isn't good. 
That's another subset of what I just said. It's this idea that if I'm not getting answers, then my faith isn't strong. And if I'm not getting answers, then maybe God isn't good. Right? If I do think, I, re I really did have faith. I really did feel it. I really did persevere. I really did fight the unbelief. And the thing that I was wanting and praying for didn't happen. Then the enemy can come in there with that subtle accusation of maybe God's not good. And another false assumption is this idea that real faith is the faith that gets results. Now this one, if you, if you think about it, this is the type of thing that is probably a core main topic of various Christian charismatic books. This idea that real faith in this book are the keys, the hidden keys of how to obtain real faith that gets real results. So that there is this underlying idea that if you really have faith, you're going to have a laundry list of testimonies. Right? You'll, you'll have just a host of testimonies of God, of God releasing power through your life because you have the real faith that really gets results. But I believe that in that belief system is also a false assumption that that is how we should be looking at faith. So before I jump back into Hebrews 11, I want to take a brief moment and look at a little bit of context from Hebrews 10 and then also context from Hebrews 12. So how many of you know back when this Bible was written, there was no such thing as chapter and verse. Not only was there no such thing as chapter and verse, there was no space between words and there were no cons there were no vowels. There were no vowels. So there were no vowels, there was no spaces between words, and there was no chapter and verse markings of any kind. Talk about confusion. Oh, and they wrote backwards. So that is how far the Bible has come. The, 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 the vowels were basically passed down through oral repetition and, and there was, they often sang the scriptures. So within, anyway, that's, there's, eventually we got vowels and eventually we got spaces between words, we got punctuation, we got chapter and verse markings. So as we're looking at this topic of faith, uh, you, you never want to just accidentally stick yourself in a chapter and not look ahead and behind because you can gain understanding. But I didn't want to do that at the first class because I wanted us to get our feet wet and get a sense for what Hebrews 11 was about before looking at Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. So let's jump in. I'm just for the sake of time, I'm going to go straight to Hebrews 10:35 through 39, though I could start all the way at the beginning of Hebrews 10, and that would be a, a fun discussion to go verse by verse through Hebrews, all of Hebrews 10 and 12, but we don't have time. So let's start at verse 35. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And then verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, 
you may receive what was promised. So here we see this exhortation, don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. In other words, cling to the good. Don't throw it away, persevere. It says, and then you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, in other words, you're in the right place, you're obeying God, you're responding rightly to him. And after you've obeyed, after you've positioned yourself rightly before God, you still have to, you still have the need, you have lack, you have the need to endure. So even in the context of obedience, there's still this need to endure. So that, and then it says, you may receive what was promised. So that you'll receive what was promised. In other words, receiving the promises of God is connected not just to obedience, but to endurance. It's not just that God gives us a requirement and then we hurry up and do it and then we're like, hey, daddy, daddy, look, I did it, I did it. What he's wanting to develop in us is something more than just, I mean, that's hard to say it that way, more than obedience. Obviously, he wants us to obey. But he's, he's wanting that obedience to be fleshed out over time. And that is shown through endurance, this need to endure. And what's interesting here is that the you in these verses, 35 and 36, it is not in the singular. It is in the plural. So we're talking about a corporate exhortation. Do not throw away your confidence, corporate, which has great reward. For you, corporate, need endurance. So that when you, corporate, have done the will of God, you, corporate, may receive what is promised. So God is not just looking for us to personally pursue God. He's looking for us corporately, us plural, to respond to God, to believe him, to persevere, and even the final release of the promise is wrapped up in the corporate. When we think about faith, we're often thinking about ourself, right? I mean, even when we want breakthrough or we want healing, it's, this is a tricky one. If we're really honest, there's levels of selfishness in those desires, if we're honest, right? We want our friend, our parent, our child, our spouse to be healed or delivered. Why? Well, and we would automatically say, well, for them, right? Because they need the healing. They need the breakthrough. They need the provision. But if we're really honest, there's going to be a sliver perhaps more than a sliver, depending on who we are, what season of life we're in, of selfishness. Where it's like, I want my parent healed so that my, the, my experience of the next years and decades of my life would include them. And you could argue and say, well, that's not a selfish idea. All I'm saying is, is the human heart has layers of hidden motives and selfishness that's woven throughout. 
So we can wrestle with that, we can argue with that, but that, that, that is the potential for that is there. For our desires to be wrapped up in selfish motives. But here we have, this is corporate. This is a corporate exhortation. You, corporate, may receive what was promised. So it's not just individual. God isn't just looking at you individually and saying, if you drum up enough faith, then you will get what you want. There's something that God wants that is different and separate just from our personal experience in life being full of prosperity and blessing and breakthrough and healing. I mean, we, we would all want that, right? Who wants to live debt-free, debt without sickness, without marital conflict, without conflict with your children, with plenty of sunshine and no issues? All of us, we're going to be, sign me up. But what I don't want to do is orient my idea of faith around those desires to say, if I have enough faith, if my faith is pure enough, then I'll check off more of those items off the list. That if my faith is pure enough, I'll have less debt. If my faith is pure enough, then my kids won't fight with me. If my faith is pure enough, then I'll get more favor and go on more vacations. If my faith is pure enough, then I'll have less car repairs. That's not exactly how life works, nor is it what Hebrews 11 is about. The, the faith that gains God's approval is different than that thing that we, perhaps we don't articulate it, but we selfishly want the perfection of the purity of faith so that our life will be easier and more pleasant. So that is the challenge that perhaps the faith that God is wanting to, to work into us is different than the faith that, quote-unquote, gets the results. So verse 37, For yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So the faith talked about here seems to have a lot more to do with long-term endurance and steadfast trust in God than in radical miracles obtained through faith. So my righteous one shall live by faith. Here again we see this reality of living. So faith isn't just this surge of of desire for something, for something powerful from God. But the righteous one shall live by faith. And the righteous one is also the one who doesn't shrink back. In other words, we're not jumping ship. So my soul has no pleasure in him. So if we want to know what God doesn't like, God doesn't like the faith that falls apart under pressure. The faith that shrinks back and says, forget it, it's too hard. Or forget it, I didn't get what I wanted. Hardship can expose the false motives, can expose the selfish motives in our hearts when we can realize, wait a second, 
Was I using God? Was I using the concept of faith? Was I using prayer for my own, to, to try to obtain my own selfish wants? And then when trials hit or when, or when the, there's delay in the answer, it's exposed that what I really wanted was my own end and then I'm frustrated at God because God didn't give me what, he, what I deserve. But what God wants is those who have faith unto what? The persevering of the soul. It doesn't say God's pleased with those who have faith unto the dead being raised. I believe God's capable of raising the dead. I believe that there are legitimate stories of God healing people, bringing them back, bringing them from the brink of death you know, a divine resuscitation, so to speak. I believe that God does that. But here is saying the faith that God's looking for is faith that endures, faith that releases the perseverance of the soul. In other words, the charismatic focus on faith is often on power. The, what seems to be the biblical focus of faith is I want you to trust God, keep your heart tender towards him until death and pass on that type of faith to your children and your children's children. The faith that endures, the faith that suffers long, the faith that remains encouraged and steadfast through trial. So that is part of the context of this Hebrews 10. Because then Hebrews 11 jumps right into faith is, right? But again, if you just step back a few verses, you see that in context of Hebrews 11 is this reality that faith, the faith that God's talking about is the faith of endurance, the faith, the corporate faith, the faith that will ultimately receive what is promised, but that is after years, if not generations of obedience and endurance. So then if we look at Hebrews 12, we have this exhortation on a life of faith that gains God's approval is focused on an exhortation to endure hardship, to stay on the long journey and to not give up. So again, we see this same underlying theme of how faith is being defined. So on page two, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, so this is after the Hebrews 11 list of all the men and women of faith, it says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So here we see again the same theme. 
says, in light of the list of all these people who had real faith that made the cut, in light of that, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which entangles us, and then what? Let us run with endurance the race set before us. In light of this biblical faith, let's run with endurance. The race set before us. It doesn't say pursue passionately that which God hasn't given for you to pursue. It says run the race set before you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So here we have Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then what does it say? For the joy set before him, what did he do with that faith? Jesus is our example. What did Jesus do with that faith? He endured the cross. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him. In other words, think about him. Think about Jesus and how he has endured hostility by sin against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. This is interesting. It, it doesn't say, think upon Jesus and all the miracles he did so that you won't lose heart. It says, think upon his suffering. Think upon his patient endurance of suffering. He persevered through it. He didn't jump ship at the cross. Think upon the hostility that Jesus faced so that I, so that you, so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. Very interesting. How often are we encouraged to think upon the suffering of Jesus in order to grow in faith? Most people would say the opposite. You want to grow in faith? Read the Gospels, read the testimony of miracles nonstop, and that's it. And then you'll grow in faith. But here the exhortation is different. Here is saying, in light of what faith is, in light of the list of all these people that were pleasing to God through their faith, let's embrace endurance, let's run the race, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, and in the fixing, our, in the fixing of our eyes on Jesus, it's in the context of what Jesus suffered and what he persevered through. So that is, this is how Hebrews 11 is sandwiched. It's sandwiched between these exhortations to endure, to persevere, to hold the line, to not jump ship in light of Jesus having done the same thing. All right, now let's go back to Hebrews 11 and finish where we left off. So you can see the list of questions that I had asked last week. What are we looking for? We're wanting to learn about faith, its quality, its object, its result. Does the timing of breakthrough speak positively or negatively about faith? Can we define faith by a narrow requirement? Does faith always possess or lead to certain manifestations of breakthrough? Can faith be measured by our emotions? Is faith psychological certainty? Is our faith stronger if we stick our fingers in our ear and say, la, 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 
anytime anything that seemingly opposes our faith comes to our ears? Does real faith always deliver us from hardship? These are all relevant questions, and I'm sure there's more you could ask. But keep these in mind as we finish going through Hebrews 11. So verse 19, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. So here we have another generation passing, and the promises given to Abraham have not yet come. So they didn't come to Abraham. They didn't come to Isaac either. And yet, by faith, Isaac is blessing the next generation. And then verse 20, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. So now another generation is passing and Jacob finds himself dying and yet ready to bless by faith his children again, professing God's sure coming promises. And then verse 21, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Yet another generation had passed and this time it's even worse because Abraham's growing family line doesn't even live in the promised land anymore. They were prospering and multiplying in Egypt, but they were no longer in the promised land. That's crazy, right? Generation after generation after generation, they lived all the seasons. They lived all the, the cycles of harvest and and planting, and, and trials, and wars, and famines, and all the, all the family dynamics of raising kids, and all the cycles of the children's development. They, they lived. They lived life hoping and expecting for God to fulfill the promises given to Abraham. And each time they came to their deathbed, their faith was steadfast enough to pass on to the next generation. Is that the faith that we're cultivating in our own hearts? Faith that on our own deathbed, we will turn to our children or our grandchildren and in faith bless them and bless their future, knowing that God is faithful. And the faithfulness of God, His character, long term, is more important than whether or not in our lifetime we got the Whatever it, is, whatever it is that we want the most. Whatever breakthrough, whatever favor, whatever provision, whatever manifestation of revival in our region, whatever that thing is that we want the most, is the faith that we're cultivating the type of faith that will lead to us turning to our children and grandchildren and blessing them and speaking life over their future and speaking the sure coming of the promises of God. So, page three, as, I'm, as I personally look through that list of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, this passing on, what comes to mind is this reality that we would probably consider 
the purest, richest, most vibrant faith to be possessed by those that perform the greatest miracles and participate in the greatest demonstrations of God's active manifest power. Is that true? We would consider the purest and richest and most vibrant faith to be the faith that is surrounding the lives of those that see the biggest miracles. I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a logical connection. That that's the way our natural heart and emotions will work. We think the purest faith is if you see more miracles. The purest faith is the ministry that has the most favor. The purest faith is the traveling evangelist or prophet that seemingly has the boldest words that come to pass and has the most anointing on their life. We, we, we think that the purest faith is that. But yet here we see the another side of faith that's no less real, but is a lot less enjoyable. Here we see faith in God that must be passed down generation to generation regarding things that God has promised, but that haven't come to pass. How many of you are like, sign me up to be one of those middle generations that doesn't see it? But what is it in our psyche, what is it in our emotions and our psychological makeup, what is it that says that somehow that's less than? That being of the generation that trusts in God and doesn't see it, that somehow that's, that that's like second string, that's, you know, second class citizen, second class Christian, because if you believe it and don't see it, well, that's not, that's not real faith. That's not real pure faith. That's just like, well, just, you're just clinging on. And good for you, you clung to faith. But the real faith, the real pure faith is the faith that gets results. Is that what we believe? Do we believe that the generation or the multiple generations that cling to God and pass on the faith to the next, that they're just second class citizens? That they didn't fast enough or pray in tongues enough hours to to earn the purest and most vibrant faith that gets results. What I see in Hebrews 11 is God saying, all of these people in all the diversity of their experience had faith that pleased him. In other words, as I said in, in the first session, there's a difference between the quality of faith and the experience of faith. The quality of faith can be the same across dynamically different people that experience dynamically different things. You could have the same purity of faith and have favor and breakthrough and wealth and an amazing marriage and all the things that you want, or you could have purity of faith and live a life of suffering. You could have the same purity, but a completely different experience. Faith that gains God's approval is faith that is focused on God and trusting Him, and not faith that is primarily looking to the personal benefit of the promises coming to pass. And here's the challenge. Again, if we're looking at our own motives, if my motives, if there's any selfishness in me, then my desire for God to come and break in 
will partially be to satisfy that selfish desire in me. For I, I, I don't want to be bored. Or I want to see cool things. Or I want to be the center of attention. Or I want the anointing to fall on me so that people think I'm awesome. If there's any level of selfishness, then that will work its way into even our pursuit of faith. It is a different type of faith, an unselfish faith, a faith that gains God's approval to care more about God and his plan than our personal experience of, of suffering or breakthrough and of trials or blessings. In other words, it strips us of selfishness it exposes our selfishness if we get to a place where it's like, God, you're worthy of my worship whether or not the third great awakening comes to America. You're worthy of my worship whether or not my political party gets into the White House. You're worthy of my worship whether or not society degrades to the point of throwing pastors in prison. You're worthy of my worship even if my children have massive moral failures and run away in a horrific manner. You're worthy of my worship even if fill in the blank. And then verse 22 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Moses' parents exercised faith when they didn't fall into fear. So again, faith has more facets than we can realize. By faith, when Moses was born was hidden. Have you ever hidden anything in faith? I don't know that I have. But faith isn't always an act of valor or courage in the sense of physically defending yourself. Sometimes faith could be obeying God's lead to hide something or someone. And then verse 23, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 24, Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And then verse 25, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here, by faith, Moses got himself into suffering. Is that consistent with what we see, what we, our modern conception of faith? By faith, Moses refuses the blessing or seeming blessings, the, the blessed life of being under Pharaoh, he refused that and instead chose ill treatments. By faith, he, by faith, he chose ill treatment. By faith, he chose not to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That takes faith. That takes faith to say, I'll suffer now to honor God. I will suffer now to, to look for a reward that is far distant. So faith can lead Moses to experiences that include ill treatment. 
So there's a big gap between the quality of faith that pleases God and his gains his approval and the experience of faith that often leads to suffering. That's what we see through this list of by faith, by faith, by faith. Often on the quality side, it's faith that gains God's approval. On the experience side, it's faith that leads to suffering. Faith that requires endurance. Faith that leads to hardship. And then verse 26, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Again, faith leads to freedom from fear and endurance. And then verse 27, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he was, he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And then verse 28, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So all of these things that they're engaging in, they're difficult. It could cost them their life if God doesn't pull through. And yet by faith, they kept going. And then it changes stories. Verse 29, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Logically it made no sense. Circling the city, you're just taunting the people. Like, hey, throw rocks over here. Shoot me with arrows. Take us out one by one. I dare you. But by faith, they obeyed the commands. They did it. And God followed through. And then verse 30, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish, along with those who were, who were, who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So Rahab's life was, per, was preserved through her faith. How many of you know it takes faith to walk away from a sinful past and to not forever be defining our life and our future by our sinful past. Rahab the harlot could have been like, man, you're right, there is a God, I've transgressed him, it's over, forget it. I, di I didn't make the cut, I'm a failure, I'm a fraud. So it's faith that gets us out of that negative self-talk, that self-judging cycle of hating ourselves because we've failed. It's like we've all failed. No one, has, no one here has a clean slate in the sense of having never sinned. We, our slate is only clean through what? Faith. We enter the kingdom by faith. We're forgiven by faith. We're delivered by faith. And here we see that in the life of Ahab. Or, sorry, Rahab. So in then verse 31, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. I just think this is cool right here. This like sudden acceleration of names. 
It's like, I, I'm not writing fast enough. I just, I, I mean, there's something exploding inside of me. It's either that or he was running out of paper or ink. I'm not sure. But there's this acceleration of names and examples. So in, in verse 32, we like this part. Like th- this, is, this is gold. This is, this is the version of faith that we normally understand and, 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 uh, and cling to. Verse 32, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises. Can I get an, can I get an amen? By faith obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Verse 33, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. We're like, oh, yes. That's the faith that we like. That's the faith that we, like, that's what we would call getting results in faith. This is the, here we have the real stuff. This is what we think of when we think faith. Big miracles, superhuman breakthroughs. This is what stirs our heart. And let me remind us, this is real. This part is real. This this part of chapter 11 is, is no less real than everything that preceded it. So we're not pitting one against the other, saying, this, saying the, the miraculous breakthrough of God is less faith than suffering, nor are we saying the miraculous breakthrough of God is more faith than suffering. The testimony of the passage is that all of these men gained approval through faith, and yet their experiences were widely different. And somehow there's room for that under God's definition of what faith is. And then verse 34, women receive back their dead by resurrection. This is like punchline of the charismatic women's conference. Women, receive back your dead through faith. Have the faith, stir the faith, proclaim the faith, pray the faith, fast the faith, and gain back your dead by resurrection. But it's awesome. I mean, this is a real story. Women really did receive back their dead by resurrection. I mean, I can make it, make it into a joke for a second, but the, the, the sobriety of it is this is the God we serve. God can raise people back from the dead by resurrection. And that is something that we too embrace. So the, the, as, as my wife says all the time, my favorite word is tension. This is it. This is the tension of faith. The tension of faith is we, we have to stay in that place of saying, God, you're capable of raising the dead by, through resurrection. You're capable of closing the mouths of lions, of putting foreign armies to flight, of, of, of releasing the obtaining of promises, of conquering kingdoms, of escaping the edge of the sword, you're, you're, of quenching the power of fire, You're capable, God, of all of these things. And yet in that same breath, we say, God, but you're also faithful for the thousands that want these things and for reasons that we don't know, live lives primarily 
of trial, tribulation, and suffering, and they don't get the answers or the breakthroughs that they want. The same faithful God, pastoring the same flock of people, fathering the same, the same children of his, the same bride of Christ, and they're both true. So not everyone's experience of life ends in victory parades, right? So the, the last half of verse 34, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured. How many of you sign up for that half the verse? Not accepting their release. Why? So they might obtain a better resurrection? Wait a second. Uh, do, do, we, do we talk about this? They, they embraced greater suffering because they had faith for a better resurrection? Just speaking for myself, like as being in the charismatic space, I check myself here and I'm like, God, I don't want to lose vibrant faith for you to release breakthrough and I also want to have faith that endures the long run the long journey that, that, that contains difficulty and trial and tribulation but then here there's this thing of like wait a second you embrace suffering knowing that it's going to lead to a better resurrection that's a message that the charismatic church is a hundred, in my humble opinion, it sounds to me 100% foreign. 100% foreign. To say I'm going to embrace suffering because I have faith that's anchored in the resurrection. Not faith that's anchored in the third great awakening. Not faith that's anchored in revival hitting Boonville. Not faith that's anchored in the right president getting into power that makes the right, that, that makes the right political decisions that deports people or imports people or reshapes tax codes or whatever, that my faith is anchored in God so much, anchored not just in God, but in something beyond this life, that I'm like, okay, God, if it means a better resurrection, give me suffering. If it means a better resurrection, stabilize me, Help me, hold my hand, do whatever you got to do, but God, I choose the route of suffering. That's a challenging, that's challenging. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You are not going to see that as a tagline to a conference. 35, verse 35, and others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Verse 36, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Men of whom, verse 37, men of whom the world was not worthy, 
wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Like, where is this in our understanding? Where does this fit? Here it says, they were put to death with the sword. If we're paying attention, we would have saw just a few verses prior. It says that by faith, people escaped the edge of the sword. So, explain that one. By faith, some escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, others die from the edge of the sword. And somehow, both are faith that gains approval. Somehow both of those radically different experiences, one of sovereign breakthrough and one of suffering that led to death, somehow both of those are faith that gained God's approval. It's as if the author wanted to make sure that we knew that enduring hardship also requires faith. And then verse 38, if, we, if, if, we, if you think my interpretation is veering from the truth, this brings it right back. Verse 38, and all of these, because we need to be reminded, all of these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And then verse 39, because God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. At first reading, you might read that and be like, I don't even know what that's saying. Let me, let me break it down. So here we're talking about this historic list of people, some conquered, some suffered. They all gained approval through faith. And then it's saying, but they didn't get what was promised. Why didn't they get what was promised? Because God has provided something better for us. The us there is talking about, that, that, that's the author of Hebrews talking present tense to the believers at the time. So that apart from us, they, past tense, past generations, would not be made perfect. So why didn't Abraham simply receive what was promised? Why did multiple generations live and die without seeing the promise? Why do some men conquer kingdoms in faith and others die suffering in faith? Hebrews 13, verse 14, it says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So this is again the author of Hebrews in, what his, in his generation, saying the same thing that Abraham said. What did Abraham say? He left his old country looking, looking for what? Looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Here, lots of generations later, the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. He's like, hey, I'm going to join you. I'm going to join you in seeking the city which is to come. And then Revelation 21, 10 through 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like the very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And obviously you could keep going and get a fuller description of Jerusalem. So what does this mean? The ultimate promises of God that he was releasing to all of these past generations, the patriarchs of faith in the Old Testament, the promises of God that he was releasing was something exponentially bigger and more corporate than just that individual or family line having God give them favor and showing them cool stuff. We're not just talking about favor on a family line. We're not just talking about a, 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 a family group saying, hey, in my family line, I saw this many miracles and this many people got out of wheelchairs and this many people, you know, accomplished these cool things for God and this many people were pastors. What God is doing, big picture with the larger multi-generational body of Christ is something big, far bigger than any of those individuals. And it's this, it's this reality that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect. In other words, it's pointing to this reality, the real promise of God, the real fulfillment of God's promises is wrapped up in his coming back to the earth. It is wrapped up in the new Jerusalem, which is built by God coming down out of heaven upon the earth to be filled with his glory that is so bright that you literally don't need the sun, that no unrighteous person will ever step foot in the new Jerusalem. The promises of God are wrapped up in that, in the final culmination of human history, in the bride making herself ready, being purified for what? The marriage supper of the lamb. That's what it's about. So when it says they died in faith, having not yet received, they received some stuff. I mean, it says, like, some received their children back from the dead. Some received the, 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 the mouths of lions being closed and fire being quenched. And we receive little P promises, little A answers to prayer. But I don't want my whole life to be wrapped up in the small things when God is saying, the promises I have for you are so big, it's actually going to take all the generations being faithful, all the generations obeying God and trusting him. It's going to take all the generations passing on the faith from one generation to the next, 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 until it's beyond what your eye can see. That's what God's wanting to bring about. He's wanting to bring the new Jerusalem back to the earth. He's wanting to finish that city that he said he was going to make. And not only that, but how many of you know the promises that God has for us, our physical frame that is tarnished with sin, we can't even handle it. You ever thought about that? I mean, we, get a, we feel a little bit of God and our bodies don't even know what to do with it. Some of us shake, some of us fall over, some of us scream, some of us laugh. It's like, we don't even know what to do. So we just do crazy stuff because we, 
We don't know what to do with just a tiny little touch of God's presence. And that's us in our human frame responding to God. Some sit silent, some rejoice, some scream, some laugh, some close their eyes, some open their eyes, some fall over, some shake, some, some feel heat, some, some, feel convict, some feel groaning, some feel all sorts of things. We are, we, we, when God touches us, we respond in different ways. But the promises that God ultimately has for us are so great that it will require a resurrected body to feel it. Right? I mean, we see that in the Bible. God shows up. John falls over like a dead man. It's like, uh, okay, that didn't really work. <laughs> Here I am, God. Boom. Now an angel's got to come touch me to bring life back into my body. But that's real. The promises God has for us being faithful, they far exceed these little trivial things. I mean, we, on the one hand, it's like, it's not trivial, it's real. I, I feel the real pain when, 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 I need, when I need breakthrough and healing and things don't happen in my life. Like, I mean, on one hand, that's not trivial. It's, it's very real. It's traumatizing to, 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 to suffer and to endure hardship. But on the other hand, in light of eternity, it can't compare. All right. I am going to skip over part five, conclusions and applications. You can read through those. Basically, I just kind of summarize the reality of what faith is. And instead of going through that, I'm going to read a poem. Yay. I wrote a poem, so I'm going, to re I'm, go I'm going to read it. It's called By Faith. <coughs> this is my way of encapsulating this message. By faith we are saved, and by faith we belong. By faith, through weakness, we are made strong. In faith we live, and in faith we wait. By faith, some get breakthrough, and by faith, some men suffer. By faith, some get healed, and in faith, some men die. Faith is stronger than trials, and even our why. Faith takes on lions, and faith wrestles with doubt. Faith leads some to a, to a palace, and others to death. Faith in the pain, and faith in sorrow. Faith in mourning, and faith for tomorrow. Some are the generation of the sowers. Some are the generation of the waiters. Some are the generation of the reapers. And yet faith unites them all, not in experience, but in approval. Faith in the mundane, faith in the crisis, faith in times of suffering, and faith in times of breakthrough. Faith is not defined by the size of the miracle. Faith is not defined by the timing of the breakthrough. Faith is defined by our long-term belief our obedience, and our hope. Faith not in miracles, but in Christ. Not in circumstances, but in the character of God and our ultimate salvation. By faith, we put our trust in the cross and our hope in the resurrection. By faith, we will stay the course when days turn to decades and morning turns to night. By faith, we remember we were promised trials and tribulations, 
but also an inheritance beyond comprehension. By faith we resist the devil, and by faith we overcome. By faith we serve a God who will never leave us to be devoured. By faith we live in light, even in the darkest hour. When life sometimes makes us wonder where God is or if he's watching, by faith we choose hope, and by faith we don't give up. By faith God has a plan, and by faith he will see it through. By faith he has not left us, and by faith he's coming back. By faith death couldn't hold him. By faith death death isn't our end either. By faith we are in a kingdom, and by faith we look for a city that we do not yet see and cannot yet get into. By faith we join with the generations that died and didn't see it. By faith we wait for the heavenly city the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. By faith it is coming, and by faith we belong. By faith we will enter and sing heavenly song. By faith we live, and in faith we die. By faith we resurrect and join him in the sky. It is all by faith. Amen. So Lord, we thank you, Father, for the testimony of Scripture. Father, we thank you that faith, God, is so rich and full. Father, we pray that you would keep us on the journey that you have for us. God, whether it be in breakthrough or in sorrow, God, whether it be in triumph or in trials, God, we pray that you would forge within us a faith that pleases you, God, a faith that brings you delight. God, we pray, God, you'd give us grace, grace to love, grace to endure, grace to stay the course, God, grace to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.